How y'all doing? How are you? It's the two Pauls here. Hi. First time we've been doing an intro together in a while. Yeah, it's nice to reacquaint myself with your mannerisms and and <laughs> and, and, and uh, dissolute tones. Um, <laughs> yeah, we just just yeah, it kind of sometimes it works out that we both can't do it, so we do we do our solo runs. Yeah, we do, and uh, and how wonderful they it, it. But it, you know, it's like getting the band back together. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Good, it's good. Um, today, episode 70 odd, 72. Two, I think. Two, we think today uh, is a is an actor, an actor and a writer uh, from uh, from Donegal, excuse me. I nearly said Galway again, uh, by the name of Sean T. O'Malley or O'Malley. Wailing. Um, he he addresses are. this in Whoa, the podcast, don't worry. Yeah. He is. Um, uh, really interesting guy working for a long period of time and you know um in the Irish language but also um in good old uh, good old English as well. Very he, versatile actor. Mm-hmm. Um really good. Looks great on screen uh, and it's great to work with. Yeah, sound man. Um who was also I have to say incredibly incredibly disappointed you weren't there. He's like where's the other we brought cakes. Oh uh, no. no. Where's <laughs> Where's the other Paul? I didn't know. And I was like, cakes. I'm really sorry. There's no Santa Claus. I, 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 had, I had to work. I, I was planning. I, yeah, got last minute. Um, I piled work on. Yeah, but it's yeah, Sean is, and you know, literally one of the nicest guys yeah. uh, in show business uh, in this country, um, working in film and TV. So um, yeah, he had some really interesting uh, stories about starting off acting in Galway and how wonderful supports that he got and. Uh, how difficult it is to produce um, Irish uh, language uh, film and TV, but how gratifying it is also. Um, and an all-around, like, really top, top bloke. Um, we'd like to take a, a moment to thank our wonderful sponsors. Yes. Well <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, wildcard Distribution, uh, wonderful support to us. We really appreciate Everything they've been doing for us. Um, they've got a wonderful slate of films coming up over the summer, so keep an eye out for um, Extraordinary, Extra which is which is yeah. which is dropping next. Um, and uh, head over to their Facebook page to see kind of what's coming out next. Incidentally, uh, since we're on the subject of wildcard distribution, Patrick O'Neill is joining us um, along with um, a representative of the Irish Film Board, uh, with uh, Colin McKeown hosting. Uh, Eileen is uh, going to be joining us um, from Business Affairs. So we have a networking event on Tuesday night, um, which is on in Token in uh, Smithfield, Dublin 7. So come along to that. Um, It's about the pitfalls of, uh, I suppose, the legalities and copyright issues that you may encounter in terms of sales. Um, So it's going to be addressing a number of issues in terms of the actual scriptwriting process, what to do with it when you have it, uh, when, when it's finished, where to go, who owns what, um, what happens when you sign a contract, all those type of things. And then ultimately when the film is made, then in terms of sales and distribution, what uh, the legalities are there and how to uh, how to go about best practices in relation t- to that. So what's the time and date for that, Paul? It's uh, the 3rd of September, which is Tuesday, and it's on in Token, Dublin, and everybody's welcome for beer. And we'll also have a couple of spot prizes on the night for sound people. And what time is it kicking off? 7pm, Polly. Excellent. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, we have all our housekeeping done. I think so, yeah. Keep it, we do have, uh, we're rolling out a couple of other classes, and uh, including screenwriting classes and um, some uh, one for voiceover and another one for... Uh, for actors, we ne- we've neglected actors in FNI for a while, so we're rolling out a couple of acting orientated events over the Try- between now and Christmas. <coughs> Trying to think outside the box and do courses that no one else is doing, but ones that are really inter- really useful. Yeah, we put a lot of time into kind of planning who we get in and who's kind of not necessarily, you know, um, instantly recognisable, but brilliant at what they do. Mm. Um, to help people get the most out of uh, out of their uh, talent, their own talent and skill set. Uh, okay, let's go to Sean T. O'Malley.
today in the studio we have uh, uh, an actor. Uh, uh, am I right in saying you write as well? You write a bit as well, don't you? I do, yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Do you direct also? Um, I kind of think like that I have sort of dipped my toe into many different things. <laughs> so like, I, you, I, actually, I, you were saying Paul isn't here because he's writing for Fair City. I do a bit of writing for Us in Room. Ah, okay. So I'm... I'm also in the middle of doing a script, which is number, I think it's my 19th episode for Rustin Rune wow. that I've written. Um, so, so you're a writer. A very, you're I, a writer. I am a writer, yes. I suppose I can't deny that. <laughs> <laughs> it's irrefutable. Uh, yeah. Uh, well done for being multifaceted. Fair play to you. And speaking the Owl Irish. Multifaceted? Are you saying that I'm two-faced? So, sorry, this is, uh, this is Sean T. O'Malley. Am I pronouncing O'Malley right? Yeah, I think it depends on where you're from. Like, um, I would, told, I would so. pronounce it... See, some people wouldn't put so much emphasis on the G in at the end, so it actually would sound more like O'Malley. O'Malley, yeah. Um, but, like, I don't mind either. You're not, just you're not offended by my Dublin, my, my sultry Dublin tone? I'm not at all, <laughs> no. Fantastic. So there's no, well, there is obviously a wrong way, but not, in, yeah, okay. Oh, you know, like, I've had the phone calls. I think a lot of people with Irish language surnames get those phone calls where, like, the person goes, yeah, and going, hello. And uh, the person goes, hello, can I talk to Mr. Omeya? And they kind of just give up halfway through your name. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, Wait yeah, for you to come in, come in and yeah, go, in, in, yeah. <laughs> yep. On show. Um, how are you doing? Not too bad, yeah. Um, yeah, been dying to get you on the podcast. <sighs> Let me think. No, this is, this is a good time. Like, there are ups and downs. Um, I think the, okay, the natural, natural Irish response is to go, I'm grand, how are you? Grand, okay, great. We're all both happy and both smiling when, in fact, there's a little bit of torment on the inside oh, God, yeah. everyone's dealing with the ups and downs um, right now things are good you're okay yeah, not too bad yeah, yeah. but like it kind of changes day to day week to week to be honest Yeah. yeah. some days you know <laughs> leaving the apartment <laughs> is a win yeah yeah like other days when you're not working or like if I'm writing if I'm doing stuff and all that most of that work is at home in the apartment and sometimes you're banging your head off the wall I see now you've got one of those kind of um, things on the wall behind you to uh improve the sound one of those soft cushiony things which I could do with in my apartment so I don't <laughs> injure myself when I'm banging my head off the wall Do you have one of those signs where it says bang your head here? No, no I should I should <laughs> at least make it consistent and kind of have some kind of a you know So scale. you're in you're in good form Yeah 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 um, This was this has, it's been a pretty good year yeah. so far uh, Last probably better than last year in terms of work um, I got I had the great pleasure of doing a show this summer in the Arts Festival in Galway uh, with a company from Galway called Moonfish and it is an adaptation of a Joseph O'Connor novel ah, um, Oh, okay Yeah, so like he, we previously did what well, the company previously did an adaptation of Star of the Sea which was very successful and they did it in 2014 and it toured in 2015 and then it toured again in 2017 and that's when I came on board because one of the actors wasn't available Right And I got very lucky because the 2017 tour was a month tour around Ireland and then three weeks in North America. Well, that's okay, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it was oh, okay, I'll do it. Okay, I suppose. Oh, I suppose. Jesus. It's like one of those things in my head I've been kind of going, I'd love to travel for work. Please. I'd love to travel for work. And then Moonfish have actually managed to take another box on my little mental things I'd love, I'd love to do with this show in that um, for ages, like I'm not a, I don't, I kind of, I get a bit of enjoyment from singing, but I wouldn't call myself a singer. Mm -hmm. And I play a little bit of guitar, but it's mostly like in my own apartment uh, where only my girlfriend is listening to me. Um, <laughs> and every now and again, I've played it for other people. But there's a part of me kind of going, oh, it'd be so cool to be like the lead singer of a band. And with Redemption <laughs> Falls, this new play, it's all, well, no, I can't say it's all music, but we've tried to tell the story as much as possible through music. Okay. So there's a bit where I kind of get to be the lead singer of a band. You're like a, like, a rock star yes. for like four or five minutes. That's it, exactly. Well, that's <laughs> it. No, it's a shorter song. It's probably about two minutes. <laughs> Apart from the time there was a little bit of a hiccup when we were doing the show in Galway where um, there's a bit in the middle of the song, say, I think between verse one and verse two, where I pull the microphone off the stand and kind of get a bit more rowdy. And I pulled the microphone off the stand a little bit too rowdily and disconnected it from its cable. Oh, no. And then was frantically trying to unwrap because the cable had gotten there's a little wrapped. number like to call <laughs> fix the mic stand yeah it gotten, the cable had gotten ra wrapped around the mic stand so I was then trying to unwrap it and also reconnect the mic at the meantime the guitarist was able to cover the whole thing with a lovely little guitar solo because he's a fantastic guitar player improvisation is That's not it, just yeah. for actors yeah. oh fantastic we, we managed to get through it and nobody died uh, um, 
so let's go back. I'm gonna we're gonna take it right back. We're gonna take it Michael Aspel style right the way back to uh, Galway, isn't it? You were born in Galway. Uh, not born in Galway. Oh, no. sorry. Excuse me. Uh, although I am, Galway is probably where my heart is, or certainly a good chunk of my heart is in Galway. Okay. Um, I was born in Donegal. Oh, were you? Yep. Um, and we moved to Galway when I was about nine or something, about eight or nine. Okay. And actually, well, there were a couple of years there where we were kind of half living in Galway and half living in Donegal, which was crazy. My parents were on this little uh, small sort of uh, seaside hotel in Donegal, which okay. had a very much seasonal business. So it was like busy in the summertime, busy in Easter um, and a bit of kind of like sort of the bar would be open throughout the year. But they would get like when we were kind of half living in Galway, we'd be in Galway yeah. during the school week, going to school and then going back to Donegal pretty much every weekend. And at those days, it was like four hours on a Friday and four hours on a Sunday. And then we'd spend the entire summer in Donegal as well. Oh, so lovely. I lived up, like like grew up on the beach. So it's like The Departed with less killing and gangsters. It is nothing like Do you have an A? Do you have an A? The Departed was ruined for me because I was in a, ru- <laughs> I was in a full cinema and there's a bit towards the end where somebody gets thrown off a roof. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, somebody, oh, was it that? Okay, there are lots of killings towards the end. But yeah, for if one you of haven't them, seen it, folks, it's, yeah. it's 14 years or something. But there's, there's a lot of killing towards the end. And, and one of them, it was like a little bit ridiculous, but shocking. But somebody in the audience laughed. <laughs> and they managed, they like, because there was a laugh, it totally killed the impact of that film for me. Really? Yeah. Okay. So but like, it's still really well made. But, but also, I was a bit like, at the shot of the rat at the end, I was like... Oh, Marty. Uh, too, no, too on the nose. Too, much? too on the nose, yeah. Marty. You don't need to do that. We know they're all yeah. fucking. I assume he's out there listening to this, Marty. You know, if you <laughs> want to talk about your approach to the final shot of the film, please talk to either myself or Paul. Well, clear, clearly, <laughs> though, yeah. well, clearly he was told to do that. That was studio <laughs> interference. Uh, uh, that's how I see it. Okay, we'll go back to the start. Yeah, let's go back. Um, I, I'm, I'm a terrible person for going off on tangents. When did you. Did you always know, well, like, were you shy when you were a kid or did you always know you wanted to be an actor? Or was there a conscious decision to be an actor when you were a kid? I didn't really know, no. although I think the warning signs were there for my parents. My mother tells the story of going to like a, a parent-teacher meeting when, I don't know, maybe I was five or something. And the teacher said, anytime I mention an animal in class, Sean becomes that animal. <laughs> <laughs> so either I was great crack or really annoying. The hawk, the hawk. <laughs> um, so I did a bit when I was a kid, like uh, acting in school shows. I remember being in Aladdin when I was about 10 and uh, Prince all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was something that I enjoyed, but I never sort of thought of it as a career until I'd already started my degree in electronic and computer engineering in okay. Galway. All right, okay. Um, and at the same time, I joined Galway Youth Theatre because I get and that was it was my dad who sort of encouraged me in that direction. I guess he'd seen something in me mm-hmm. and he he had he has a great interest in the arts and acting and directing. What, what and did all your that dad stuff. do? Um, my dad worked for TG Carr oh, really? up until a couple of years ago. So he was commissioning editor in TG Carr. OK, I didn't know that. Um, okay. And so I think I think if the other Paul was here now, he probably would have come across him somewhere along the line. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, well, the other ball isn't here. The other okay. ball isn't here. I'm okay. so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, it's if like the, if the other guy. Oh was God, here. the other guy. If, uh, um, the other girl I wanted to date was here. <laughs> <laughs> Never talk about your ex on the first date. <laughs> um, so I think my dad had seen something in me that but, I guess but was also but, in him, but obviously didn't actively push you towards that. Well, he caught the article out of the Galway Advertiser saying that GYT, Galway Youth Theatre... But this was before university, uni, obviously, was it? Um, I was just starting college. Okay. So I was 17, going into first year in college. And in that same September, they were having, you know, a call for new people to apply. And I remember he cut the page out of the newspaper, left it outside my bedroom door. <laughs> and like a kind of teenager, not wanting to be told what to do, I would step over it day after day. And then eventually I picked it up and went... Okay, fine, I'll email them. Or no, I wouldn't have been emailed at that stage. It was probably <laughs> ringing them. This was like 2000. Um, so I contacted and like I was actually I'd gone I'd left it way beyond the application date but they still had they hadn't had the opening in night for us so they, already by that stage so they invited me to come along and I remember, actually I remember walking into the room and seeing a girl who I had been watching on Rust and Rune in my leaving search year right. and seeing her, her there waiting to start the class and I was going oh my god if she's here this must be a really good thing to get into Um and you know, I was just started doing classes with Go Youth Theatre. We did our first show that December, 
which was a show called uh, Spring Awakening, mm-hmm. which has since been turned into a musical. There's a musical version, but this was kind of the sort of the non-musical version, which is a great show. Amazing, amazing play for people of that age to be working on. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of great characters, like the the teenagers are the real characters. And then there were um, sort of character-esque sort of parents and teacher characters in it as well. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, a, it was an, a great great experience for me making friends um, in the in that class and getting through that show and getting the response from the audience and I remember after doing that show kind of thinking maybe maybe I would like to do this yeah um, I'm in trouble kind of thing not I'm in trouble <laughs> I had no idea what the what the future held for me Paul in terms <laughs> of um, you know how hard the industry is but mm. it was like okay no I want to do more of this so then actually Sometime in the next following couple of months, myself and my friends, we wrote a couple of plays and we put them on in the town hall. Wow. um, In the studio space in the town hall. And it was like, we were 17. Okay, I just turned 18 by that stage. But it was like, I kind of look back and I go, man, I wish I had that sort of just ignorant confidence now. I think you kind of feel the sheer bravado. Exactly. You just, you kind of go, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do it. And then you look back years later and you kind of go, how did I think I could do that? Like <laughs> the I, neck, like, the sheer yeah, neck of me. But like we did do it. But how did I think that I could do it? Yeah. It's, it's a weird kind of um, sort of, uh, I don't know, the innocence of youth thing. But I just actually, now that I mentioned the town hall, um, they were fantastic. Uh, there was a, a guy in there who was running the town hall at that stage called Mike Diskin, who he, he made the studio space there available to local theatre companies and... Like he was this big character in town. So I remember going in kind of thinking, right, we have to really have our pitch together and know what these shows are about and why we think we'll get an audience, whatever. And we went in and he was so welcoming. He was like, what dates do you want? He turned around to his calendar, marked up a couple of dates for us. um, And like he was like very much come come on in. And like he, the platform that he provided. (laughs) 10th to the 15th, booked, booked, (laughs) booked. Talk to me. Yeah, yeah. He was like, he was, it was, his reputation definitely sort of, didn't at that stage for us it didn't kind of make us realize what a, a kind of a great and generous man he was with his time yeah and i think he understood that there were a lot of theater companies a lot of young actors writers directors going around Galway that need to be encouraged mm-hmm. so like i think the split was maybe you know 80 20 percent so like we would take we would take 80 oh they would take 20 <laughs> exactly no you kind of roll your eyes but like he was it was like basically they were just kind of covering their costs and we sold out for, I think we were in there for three or four nights and it was great, got a great response. And that was, I think, the first thing that I'd written. So I'd written this play that myself and um, actually a friend of, I won't mention the other Paul, a friend of the other Paul was in oh, it with just, me. Oh. I just did it again. Um, and then in later years, we were up in the studio again with other shows, with different, different theatre companies. And one show, actually, this is one that I kind of just come on as an actor that I wasn't involved in the production of. We had, they'd booked two weeks. They were mm. being very ambitious. You don't get two weeks out of any show in Galway because it's just, it's too small. The audience numbers are too small. And we got very small audience numbers spread fairly evenly over the two weeks. <laughs> there was one time where I think there were four of us on stage and three in the audience and you're kind of going, oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, but Mike Diskin, in his absolute generosity at the end of the two week run said, just take all the money. We won't take our cut. Just, you know, use the money to pay the actors. And he... He passed away a couple of years ago and um, he's like a real loss to the Galway arts community. But I think like what he put in place there and the opportunities that he gave people and the chance that he gave us all to kind of dip our toes in the water and see what was like, what it was like, uh, totally invaluable. Yeah. More people like that. Absolutely. Yeah. There are, and, you know, there are dozens and dozens of art. See, the problem with it's a double edged sword, those type of figures. It's wonderful to hear that he was such a nice man and incredibly encouraging. But um, like he, he took no shit as well. Yeah, like yeah there, there was that the, side of him as well. But like he just well to, to ascend to that position, you, you you know you have to not suffer fools gladly. Yeah, you know, <laughs> frankly, and there's you know there's two sides to people like that who are in that position. I, like luckily, a lot of those figures that I've encountered have been wonderfully supportive. I've I've never encountered someone that just absolutely destroyed me, you know. Yeah. But I've seen people like that in those positions who have that duality of character and have to be both of those characters. And I think. Now that I'm thinking of it now, like no, he and Carl Shields isn't somebody that I knew personally, mm-hmm. but I think the platform that he made available in the theatre upstairs was a very similar kind of thing that Mike Diskin did. Like yeah. my understanding of the two men was that they worked uh, very hard and were very generous with their time and with their input into the shows and the support for the artists that they were helping to showcase on the stage. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like 
both of them are huge losses. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, there was there was a week or two there. Also, obviously, we have to uh, we haven't mentioned on last week's, which we should have, was the great loss of uh, Danica Nika McGuigan, who I was in drama school with. She was a year beneath me in oh, drama wow. school. Um, uh, she was lovely, like genuinely the most pleasant person you could ever come across. Totally not, uh, as you as you would imagine, befitting her father as well. Not somebody who would be like have any airs or graces mm-hmm. about them whatsoever. And I was, you know, just like everyone else, we weren't in close contact or anything. But I'd seen her socially a couple of times over the years, and she was always really, really nice. Um, and it's just a dreadful, dreadful loss. It's particularly, you know, with Carol and and Nika, obviously, because both of them were relatively young. Particularly, yeah, N- Nika. Um, One of the in our small community, it's you know, it's it's tough news to kind of you know take, I guess. Um, so, and, and for me, like on top of the tragedy of losing people so young. Um, like you kind of see the the outpouring of affection and gratitude um in the in the aftermath from like with with Carl Shields recently oh. you know like like I said I didn't know him personally I'd, I'd come across him a couple of times going into shows in theater upstairs and he was very sound but you like on facebook my the entire timeline news feed whatever you call it was full of people sharing their their love for him and you kind of just go like we need to do that when people are still around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if he fully understood how, I don't know if anyone could fully understand how appreciated they are. Like, it's like, uh, there's a friend of mine who works and um, she does all kinds of different things, but she kind of does this thing at music festivals where people are allowed to attend their own pretend funeral. Okay. (laughs) And so like, they would kind of, they would, your friends would be around and they get a chance. It was like, basically, I don't know, it's kind of a way of bypassing the way that we're not very comfortable in telling people to their face how great they are or how much we love them or... Mm. Um, well, it's it's uh, intrinsically Irish yeah. as well. Anyway, yeah, so that's another little tangent. But I remember, I remember at the time when Robin Williams passed away and the response after that, and I just remember thinking, Jesus, like the... Um, mm. the, the, the sa- he must... There's no way he could have understand understood the impact impact that he had on people's lives. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. What one thing that that tells me is that how important it is to give people channels to express themselves a creatively, but also to create a space for people of you know of escapism for them to you know. Um, you know, and someone like Carl Shields in particular was, a, you know, a, a a gatekeeper of that for people. Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, life is one of those. Life is kind of ironic in that way, insofar as you don't really get pats on the back <laughs> until either a it's too late or not at all. You know, yeah. Um, unless you've worked for a career and they give you a watch at the end and give you a shake, you know, a shake of the hand and. You know, there's a grouping of, but yeah, I mean, yeah, tell, I suppose it ties into kind of our mindfulness thing, which will lead me to my next question for you. Um, You know, people need to look after themselves in terms of their own, uh, you know, physical health, but also their mental health as well, Um, which uh, leads me to kind of a question that we ask a lot of people that come on because... There's the assumption because somebody is working that they f- are successful in working all the time. Um, you know, so some people would see you popping up in different bits and pieces and go, he's working, blah, blah, blah. How do you deal with rejection? And how do you look after yourself? I think that's something that I'm trying to improve on the whole time. Because yeah. it's, it's funny, like, they're... Okay, in, in the context, like, okay... I only have my own experience, mm-hmm. but I also know that like in the grand scheme of things and in the, say, my group of friends or actors, etc. I'm extraordinarily lucky and they're kind of like, say, I'm very lucky in terms of getting work and I'm lucky that I speak Irish because that means that there are more opportunities available to me and stuff like that. And say, one of the people that I went to drama school with, 
you know, not everyone is still acting, but that's the way it happens in all industries. There's mm-hmm. always a drop off. Um, but even the people who are still acting or the people who aren't, I'm kind of going, you know, like, you know, those people are no less talented than me. Those people don't work any less hard than, than me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's there's kind of, there's no reason for it. So anyway, sorry, I say, I say that like I totally accept the fact that I am super, super lucky. But then there are other times where I think, you know, this is this is fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like tar- I'm finding this fucking hard and I'm one of the really lucky ones. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about like, uh, how do you deal with the times when you're not acting? In a, like, I guess that might be part of the reason that I do all the other things. Like, I love taking photographs. I love, I'm doing a bit more work behind the camera in terms of cinematography, if I could call it that yet. Um, bit of writing, editing, uh, all kinds of things. Puppeteering, like there's, uh, I just have lots of crack doing lots of different <laughs> things. Um, but I kind of love to keep myself busy and there's, that's a positive and a negative. There's a there's the, the negative side to it, which I'm trying to become more aware of, is it's me just keeping busy for the sake of keeping busy. And then there's the danger of burning yourself out because, you know, someone says, oh, you're free to do this. I would look at my calendar, my phone and go, oh yeah, I'm I'm free for those days. And then you end up kind of filling Every every single day in your calendar with stuff that you're doing either for yourself or for other people or whatever. And as a freelancer, like the concept of a weekend or a bank holiday just doesn't, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But so then I've kind of found myself kind of going, oh, one second, I'm actually taking no time aside for myself. And I love reading books. <laughs> but um, say if I'm writing, if there's a script that I'm working on for for Russ and Rune that I'm writing or if... Um, if there's a script that I should be reading for something that I'm acting in or um, that kind of thing, I kind of find it hard to give myself the permission to go and put it aside and read something that's not connected to work. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I need to improve. Um, and one of, <laughs> this is very sad, but one of my most enjoyable couple of hours in this year was I was on the train to go away. I think I was going there for a script meeting, but there was nothing that I can do. I could nothing else that I could do before that script meeting because everything had already been submitted, mm-hmm. and there was nothing else that I could be reading in terms of scripts. So I was like, okay, I'm going to bring a book, and I read a book on the train for a couple of hours, and I was like, that was so nice because I was like, I am traveling to go away. You know, there's nothing that I can do. The train will get there when it gets there. There's nothing that I can do to make the train get there more quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's that's nice. Take time for yourself. It's my girlfriend recently got me into watching. Uh, Queer Eye uh, on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take this little tangent because so many of their, the people that they sort of try to help have that problem of not taking time for themselves. In their most recent series, there is a teacher that uh, basically sacrifices all of her time, gives up all of her time for the benefit of the students. And is kind of, um, they're kind of saying to her, look, you know, what you're doing is amazing and all these students are benefiting greatly from it. But you're getting to the point where you're kind of running on empty. Yeah, and unless yeah. you take some time to kind of refill what you have inside you, then you're not going to be able to give them as much. Yeah. So like so this is a teacher who worked in the arts and they were like, you need to go and see, go and see shows, go and enjoy yourself. And like, if you can't think, if you don't think it's worthwhile giving yourself that time, then use the excuse of the fact that you're going to see a show that'll allow you to be a better teacher. And it's kind of, that's been maybe a bit of a stepping stone into actually yeah, going, yeah. you know, I deserve this time for myself. Yeah, yeah. Manipulate yourself into going. Give yourself yeah. a justification, which ties in with you know, your methodology or whatever. Yeah. And in, the, in order to do that. And just to pick up on kind of another side of the question you asked me, you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the non-working times being challenging. Yeah. I, for a while... Well, this is kind of this is ongoing now. There's a friend of mine, Killian O'Donoghue, that I recently made a short film with. Um, he's an actor and a writer and director as well, and uh, we get on very well. But like every six months, there was a time, well, probably more frequently than that, I'd call Killian, going, "This, ah, fuck this, I'm going, I'm going to do something else. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do something else." And he would like kind of talk me down off the ledge. Um, and uh, I, th- there were times when I was ringing him, going, and I wasn't ringing him, going oh, you know, I just got rejected from another audition or didn't get an audition. I'd be kind of going, I'm doing this job and I'm not enjoying it. Mm. And I felt, I used to feel such guilt about not, like, loving every single day of something that I was doing, be it on set or on stage or whatever. And then a couple of years ago, I was working on a radio drama 
over in London and there were I was mostly kind of surrounded by very experienced um, radio actors and well actors of all kinds of all kinds but they were kind of older lads and two of them were in a conversation and one of them I don't know where it came out of but one of them was talking about him leaving drama school and being told when leaving drama school oh you'll enjoy one job out of five or you'll enjoy one job out of seven and I was like what? And I was kind of going like it kind of made sense because obviously you know it's amazing to get work but when you kind of boil it down a lot of work is you know you're dealing with people sometimes the scenarios aren't ideal sometimes it's compromised sometimes it you know personalities don't don't click mm-hmm. sometimes it you know you imagine it to, be, to be one thing and it doesn't quite pan out to be that way and it's very you know you might not have enough time there's a struggle there are all kinds of different things well you're not briefed on the internal politics which has yet to be resolved oh yeah but as it's, well, it's also like if it's not a team that you've worked with before you're kind of stepping into the unknown yeah so why would that be guaranteed to be an amazing totally happy experience it's like any job like any workplace <laughs> in, yeah, in, yeah. In, in some senses so, but anyway, hearing this comment from him, it would kind of, I felt this freeing inside me, kind of going, no, I shouldn't feel guilty when I'm working, but not loving every moment. Mm-hmm. So that's... Did you enjoy that job? I did, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, yeah, that was, um, that was me being St. Patrick for the second of three times in my career. All right. Uh, so oh, that, so yeah, that, that's yeah, yeah. my typecasting. Oh, yeah. Holy, I... but specifically St. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm on uh, the third time. I'm I'm doing a bit on that as well. Oh, nice one. Were you? Did you come down to Ackle? No, 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 no. I'm just doing some VO. But oh, sweet. I, I, I'm on that. Um, cool. Is it hard to get started in this game or keep going? Um, it's not hard to start a race, is it really? Uh, I think it's hard to. Probably hard. Oh, jeez, that's a really tough, tough question. Um, I think it's hard to kind of break in to start doing work where you're getting paid first, to be honest. Um, like, um, I've had friends who I've seen kind of get, getting, you know, jobs in bars or other kind of paying jobs mm-hmm. just to pay their rent. And then those jobs become sort of like become their lives and drain all their energy and they don't have time to do the thing they actually wanted to do. Um, and that's a very difficult place to get out of. Like, that's the kind of thing where people who are say of middle class and have the support of parents or family or whatever are at an advantage to people who are working class and kind of living hand to mouth because you know you don't know where work is going to come from in terms of paying work and if you can't afford to not go to your job then you're also missing out on making connections with people who might lead to paying work like I love I love doing, oh, I shouldn't say this, my mother will kill me if I say this, I love doing jobs for free. My mother always says to me, she's like, you'll never stop working as long as you're doing jobs for free. Um, I, I love doing jobs where there isn't the pressure of money because yes. I find yeah, I kind of, yeah. that actually ends up psyching me out a lot sometimes. Really? So, um, I, no, but I probably do less of that in terms of acting stuff at this stage. But still, you know, if someone came along, along to me with a script and said, you know, this is what's happening, we want to do this. Um, here's the script and the script was really good and they were able to show me an example of, you know, work they'd done before. So you're before. looking for the passion, the passion. It's, yeah, th- that like fire, th- there's, there's, there's definitely time in my year to do a couple of those projects. Oh yeah. Um, and then in terms of like cinematography stuff or stuff that I kind of do behind the camera, I think if there's money involved with that, it just makes it even more stressful because it's such a new thing for me to be doing. I'm a bit like, no, actually, I'm happy if you don't pay me. <laughs> Pay me at the end if you're happy with my services. Exactly. I almost feel like saying that to people sometimes. Um, Yeah, yeah, I know that exact feeling, that kind of... It's a confidence thing. Yeah, it's it's, it's imposter syndrome, I guess, um, until you've kind of felt your way through it. Um, Someone was asking... You know, false prophet kind of thing, you know? Yeah, someone was asking me previously about imposter syndrome and I was like, I feel reluctant to say that I have imposter syndrome because me saying that I have imposter syndrome implies that I think that I'm not an imposter, but I just feel like one. <laughs> well, I'd rather, I'd, ra- I'd, rather, I'd rather have uh, imposter syndrome than like the Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, oh, yes. These guys who run into walls, you know, confidently. Yeah. Not thinking that the, those barriers are, are I'm there. I'm totally fascinated by those people as well. And they're everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I went to uh, John, 
John Cleese was giving a talk in the board gosh a couple of years ago <laughs> and it was like it was a talk followed by an interview um, and his talk was modelled around a talk that he gives to business people and okay like the short version of the story is you know yeah, he was yeah. going through marriage counselling and he got a, he went through marriage counselling for about four years or five years and ended up breaking up yeah. with his wife but kept in contact with the doctor the counsellor the counsellor because he was like <laughs> you're actually really good at your job he's like you know uh, he got on very well with him he would hang out with him and stuff um, and then at one stage he asked him he's like you know okay you're very good at your job what percentage of people in your line of work do you think are also very good at their job and the doctor was like between about 15% and John Cleese was like are you fucking kidding me um, and then he kind of went to ask other people who he respected who were at the top of their respective lines of whatever they did and he said the answer never varied outside of the between 10 and 20%. Uh, uh, so you've got so many people going... What about heart surgeons? Heart, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. They, they, I hope the percentage rises in that. I really are, you know, but he was cancer like, surgeons. His explanation for it was, you know, there are all these people, so 80% of people in, in most cases more, um, doing jobs that they're not good at. Yeah. But the thing is, they don't know they're not good at their jobs. Yeah. Because... To, to know whether you were good at your job or not requires almost the exact same skill set as being good at your job. So that's kind of a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where we've ended up now. Oh, no, a friend of mine, actually, uh, uh, she lives in London and she gets hired to do all kinds of things. And there was like, like a temping agency. So she would go and temp. And one of the things was... The temping agency was looking for actors to go and work in the IT department of, I think, Transport for London. <laughs> and they were looking for actors specifically. Because okay. ba- ba- basically... Role-playing kind of stuff, was it? Not role-playing. No, no oh, it like was pretending ciphers. you know what you're talking about. Like bullshit artists to go in and Not like, infil- infiltrate the They place. basically said the problem was that like 95% of the problems that were come to <laughs> maybe even more, were like with people's iPads and this, my friend's job was to go, was to turn it off and turn it back on again. And the problems will kind of resolve themselves in the way they do when you turn on computer off and turn it back on again. Okay. And so for a month, she worked as, a, as an IT, in, uh, IT help person in Transport for London. And I was like, I remember her telling me that story and I was kind of going, well, like, what if the world was full of people pretending that they were, knew what they were doing? And then I realised... Politics. It kind of is. <laughs> it is. That's exactly it kind what of it is. is. Yeah. I mean, look at Boris Johnson. He he's 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 siphoned a career out of quite literally being a deliberate buffoon to a, a smokescreen, essentially. His whole career is a smokescreen and publicity stunts. And look where he's landed. I know. I mean, he's he is somebody who's incredibly ill-informed, um, a, an arsehole. Uh, you know, the, the, I could go on and on and on, but look where he's landed. Now, I won't get into, you know, I won't even touch on Irish politics because that's a completely different ballgame. We're cuter about being better, better, better jobs <laughs> in Ireland. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's, let's take it back. Um, what's good writing? From an actor's perspective, and because you write as well, I suppose it's a little bit harder to be introspective. From in an that actor's in perspective, um, I think... The thing that stands out most for me, like say, if I'm reading a script initially, yeah. is um, lines that don't need to be no, don't need to be said. Mm-hmm. Now I can kind of understand how they end up getting in there because, you know, you've got the writer possibly handing the script over to a director who then has to engage with the actors, and if the writer doesn't write in the line, the kind of that beat might get lost. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I'm l- looking through a script and say. Um, kind of going, oh, you know, okay, fine, this, you know, this little speech has three lines. I only need to say one of them or, yeah. you know, this other line. And it's kind of funny, an actor cutting their lines. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you, like, there's so much... Gene Hackman, you know, exactly what you're saying. Gene Hackman would get a script and before accepting it, he would get a black marker and take lines of his out. Right. Send it back. And if they okayed it, he'd take the job. <laughs> Didn't he, know that, yeah. There you go. Quite literally, he would take lines out. Um, um, yeah. Um, I think like subtext. I mean, if you can see exactly. worlds of subtext in yeah. between the lines, you're, it's a great script. Yeah. Um, bad writing is speaking the subtext, mm. and like that, <laughs> I think that people 
even people who like don't work in the industry, I think they can recognize that they just kind of uh, if they don't know what it is, they're a bit like, oh, it's not good or I'm not. They don't feel engaged by it mm -hmm. because I think when you do that, like if you're speaking the subtext, you're actually taking away some of the crack that the audience gets to have in their head. You're stealing. Yeah, exactly. You're not sharing the experience with them. Mm -hmm. You're not sharing. You're not sharing the the kind of the process of figuring out what's going to happen. Yeah, in the let story them like them. like it's a puzzle, and you need the more if the more pieces of the puzzle you give them, the less of an enjoyable experience it is for them. Yeah, I mean it's a cerebral experience when somebody watches something. They like they need to feel as if they're ahead of the game to some capacity. And yeah, and like sometimes theatre works better than film in that sense because film, yeah. like in terms of the shot choice and stuff, that can all really affect how the story is told. But also sometimes as an audience member, you're kind of going, all right, I'm being shown this key because this key is important. <laughs> Whereas when something's happening on stage, it's like as an audience member, it's up to you to, to decide where you want to look. Yeah. And sometimes the person over in the shadows is more interesting than the person who's on stage and that's not a good show Paul <laughs> <laughs> no it's not certainly not um, what was what was the first film that, that you've seen in the cinema when you were a kid uh, you know I would if I had to answer this question and my life depended on it I would probably double check with my sister who is two years older than me and has a much better memory than me um, I think It w it might have been Honey, your, I Shrunk the Kids. Or your earliest memory of cinema. You know, something that really, really grabbed you. And you still, it's still, you know, clear, I suppose, or visceral to you now. Um, I remember being in a cinema in Galway called the Clada Palace, which was down in Salt Hill, which has since been turned into apartments. Um, other than a new cinema just opened in Galway in the last month, which I haven't been into yet. Um, but the Clada Palace... I think maybe they had two screens. Okay. Um, but one of the screens anyway had like an upstairs and a downstairs. And I was in the balcony with my dad and possibly with Sinead, my sister as well, watching Home Alone 2. <laughs> and like the cinema was was full or almost full. And I just remember the feeling of kind of everyone laughing and kind of going, wow. You know, they've been totally captured by what's happening on screen. And actually I had kind of... A similar but more grown-up experience um, watching a one-man show in the Arts Festival. I think it was 2000 and 1999, around that time in Galway, mm -hmm. in the town hall. Um, it was a one-man show about Edgar Allan Poe, who, which had been written and developed by and performed by an actor called uh, John Aston, who's the father of Sean Aston, who was in Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. Um, and... Like not many one man shows have an interval. Not many of them can kind of actually run that long to kind of to keep your Energy, attention. Yeah, yeah, to keep you there. Yeah, yeah. But like, it was an amazing show. There was, as far as I remember, there was an interval. You know, memory plays tricks. But at mm. the end, one thing I'll never forget was the lights went down and just everyone up on their feet. <sighs> it wasn't. Yeah, it was like this. You know, outpouring of oh my god, amazingness. Rather than kind of you know, the applause starts and then. A few moments later, people start to stand up and it's like people are going, oh, well, geez, the person beside me standing up. I may as well stand up, <laughs> which, you, which you often get in Irish theatre. And it kind of becomes, because it's so small, you kind of like, you're sitting there going, oh, oh I don't want them to be looking out and to, and to notice that I'm the only person who's not standing up. Um, but no, this, this was a, like a spontaneous <laughs> standing ovation for this guy, which had just done a great, great show. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really powerful. Mm. And then th seeing Don Kelly doing a one-man show, Catalpa, mm. um, I think I've seen that show twice and it was just like, oh yeah, it's like you're kind of, he's, he's kind of bending, mm -hmm. bending the lines that you thought everything had to be confined within. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, good. Yeah, there, I think there's a handful of people that are capable of that in, in this country. Pat Kinnavan obviously being another. Um, yes. Just. Okay. I, I, actually, that's another memory. Um, mm -hmm. I saw, I saw Pat Kinnavan doing a show in, Uh, Andrews Lane Theatre I don't know what age it was I'd say I was probably six or something my parents were great at bringing the two of us to theatre even when it probably wasn't appropriate <laughs> I remember I remember there being bodies lying all over the stage at the end of the show and I think he was the only la only person left living um, and the show was called something like Buffalo Bill is alive and well and living in Alaska or something along those lines and I just remember 
the thrill of it. Like it was a black comedy where people were dying left, right and centre and just being absolutely thrilled by the experience. Just farcical environment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and the power. And like I've seen him in more recent years on stage and he is such an amazing performer. I don't know where he gets his energy. It's incredible. But like he kind of, he kind of seems to, to transcend the theatre and one of the shows that he did, again, <laughs> I saw him in the Town Hall Theatre and he sort of like, he breaks the, the fourth wall and he kind of very much draws the audience into the show but like he just has this what comes across as an amazing comfort on the stage. Yeah. Like I'm sure there are moments where he's kind of going, he's Fuck, nervous or whatever. Where am I? Where yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so amazing. I think I might have spoken to him in the bar after that show and tried to convey to him how amazing <laughs> that experience that I'd had as a six or seven year old or whatever it was in Andrews Lane Theatre was. But it was a bit like uh, maybe more, I'm not sure if I communicated properly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciated yeah, yeah. it nonetheless. Um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, I suppose, a really special show on TG Cahar that uh, Dahi uh, Kane directed. And Klondike. And Klondike. Tell us a little bit about that. How um, you got involved in it and how surprised are you of its incredible success? I had worked with Dahi before mm-hmm. on a series that he made called Shakhtar Nikoska, mm-hmm. which is about the seven signatories of the proclamation and it was a docudrama, so there were a mixture of interviews and dramatic reenactments that were shot really well, yeah. like rid to a really high standard. They'd built a interior replica of the GPO, and uh, it was just it was amazing, amazing experience. And so it was a seven part series, and each of the parts concentrated on one of the seven signatories, mm-hmm. um, and he had a great cast in there as well. Um, uh, like Mar- Marcus Lamb was an oh, you know if I start naming people I'm going to forget some forget <laughs> people but it was, there was a great cast of actors and it was a really nice experience and actually I remember there were bits of that that were scripted and bits of it that weren't scripted and the bits that weren't scripted I was kind of afraid of because I was like what we've mentioned before I don't want to be speaking the subtext so there was kind of a, I was kind of trying to go okay trying to be aware how of can that. I be authentic how can yeah. I be authentic what would they have actually been talking about I know that this you know big thing in the background would have been really important to them but like they would have also been shooting the breeze so mm-hmm. there was a bit, of, a bit of trying to like in the build up to the to the to the rising so there was a bit of kind of trying to not make hammered over the head too much in those moments and then but anyway the, the whole thing was brought together fantastically really well and it's, I think it's on the TG Carr player still so it's worth watching check it out folks um, and then a couple of years later Dahi got in contact with me about on Klondike and I think if I remember correctly, actually, we made we made Shakhtar Nikoska in 2009, late 2009. Mm-hmm. And I think the first episode, they screened it as part of a screening in the FLA the following year. So on the steps of the Town Hall Theatre, again. Oh there was God. another pl- proclamation. <laughs> well, there wasn't another <laughs> proclamation, but though he said to me, oh, I'm working on something else and I think you'd be great for one of the roles. Yeah. And then... That's 2010, I think. We Yeah, we shot series one of On Klondike in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being sent the script and it was like a serious page turner. Now there were, like, kind of reading, you're turning the page and going, oh my God, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Marcus Fleming was a writer on it. And so he worked with Dahi. They kind of worked out the storylines. And then Dahi handed it over to Marcus to kind of, you know, obviously embellish the stories and stuff like that. And the characters that some of which were made up, some of which were based upon real characters, some of which were based upon characters that might have featured in a book that a guy from Donegal wrote about going to that gold rush. Mm-hmm. Mickey McGowan, a book called Rohamore and Teal. Um, and so that was an amazing experience for me um, initially because, well, there was no audition, which was lovely. Because auditions can be really scary. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there was no audition. Dahi just offered me the role uh, of this one of the three brothers, the kind of the quieter, the holier of the three brothers. You're going to notice a pattern, Paul. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, I got to spend so much time on set working with amazing people. You know, Dara Devaney and Owen McDonald played the other two brothers, and they like Dahi assembled a great cast yeah. around that as well, where like. Some characters spoke Irish, some characters were English or Canadian, so they didn't have to speak Irish. So he kind of really cast the net quite wide and he was able to get some great people in. And it was, I kind of, I'm a little worried that it's like a kind of a once in a lifetime sort of experience. It was so good because Mm -hmm. 
it was so ambitious as a script, as an idea to go, okay, we're going to set this in the late 1800s in a different country. We're going to film it in Connemara. We're going to build this little Wild West town um, and we're going to do it for T.G. Cahar because it'll be mostly in Irish and you're going to go, oh my God. Okay. That's like, that's super ambitious. But they, he got great, great people, the heads of departments in terms of like the costume, Trina Lillis and um, Paul Connell did the set design uh, in season one and Mark Kelly came over, came on in season two to take up the production design and Colm Hogan shot season one and he's fantastic. He'd also shot uh, Shakta Nagoska and uh, Kyle Waters shot season two. So like fantastic, fantastic DOPs. Um, Is it still on the player? It, um, now I know it's it, it's it's Netflix have it now. There's there's, def- there's Dom- definitely Dominion Creek. Yeah, there, there are definitely rights issues there. I'm sure because I think season two is on the TG Gahar player. Which if you've seen season one, watch season two on the player. I don't think season one is available anywhere online in Ireland actually, which okay. is, is is a shame because because it, it's season one and two is on Netflix in the UK. Yeah, but I think in Ireland you only get season two, and. I can't recommend it too strongly because it's the dubbed version. So all of the stuff that was Asquelga on the day has been dubbed into English, which which is heartbreaking when you see it. You kind of because I remember finding out, you know, on Klondike is going to be on Netflix. Well, that's why I asked if it was on the player because you want to see it in its original form. Because, like, I think as (coughs) as audience members, we're not used to seeing stuff that's been dubbed into English. Yeah like bar, you know, Jackie Chan films from the 1980s or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it just, it just kills the, it makes it really hard for the suspension of disbelief. And I think it just, it makes it much more difficult. It makes it hard to watch. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas the original programme with its subtitles, whether you have Irish or not, I think it draws you in. And I think that's something that we're more, more used to now. We're more used to watching, you know, the Scandinavian programmes and reading the subtitles that we need to. And that's kind of that's kind of a, an exception. Well, that's thing. a good. I, I'm surprised that Netflix did that to begin with, or you know, whoever. It's, it's our own voices, yeah. so it's we not were. The point, yeah, we were involved in the dubbing process. I just never thought that that would be actually the only vers- version that's available out there. So I have <laughs> no. This is a a shout out to anyone who is actually listening to this. My pinned tweet on my Twitter is a tweet toward to Netflix asking them to make the Irish language version available as an option on the yeah like you would on a DVD yeah so like because it, it like to me it on Netflix should be as easy as clicking a button going. Why, that prompts the question why would they feel as if they needed to do that but they don't feel as if they need to do that with any Scandinavian series I don't know that's um, up on Netflix yeah why is that um I don't know if it was Netflix's decision or the distributor because I've no experience. in I'm just curious, yeah. you know, you know, um, it, it's a bit of a waste that also takes the the you know the the, the sounds. It takes the sounds, the the rhythms. Absolutely, away. yeah. And there'll yeah. be people, you know, people either be they connected to Ireland through you know heritage or whatever, or even people who have got no connection to Irish to Ireland who might be thinking, oh, that's a language I'd like to hear what it sounds like. At least, yeah. yeah. So the option, the option yeah. only, please. If the, yeah. Netflix, if you're listening, which you're probably not. <laughs> um. <laughs> or if people are out there and they can retweet my tweet, it might help bring it to their, their attention. You'd be surprised. Um, what, uh, do you, do you have, do you, do you have like a philosophy um, in life that influences your work? I mean, or kind of a mantra or something that helps you keep going. I don't know if it influences my work, but I think that, like, one of the few things that I have control over is how nice I am to work with. Mm. So I always try to be friendly and accommodating and not not demanding and flexible and and everything that is under my control. The least amount of work for for other people. Yeah. Yeah. and then beyond that, I think I would, there was, when I was in drama school, so like after doing a couple of years of work as an actor professionally, I kind of went to the, I was at the point where I thought, okay, if I want to do this for the rest of my life, I should probably get some proper training yeah. outside of my classes through Go Youth Theatre. Um, so I went to the UK and did a one year course over there in the Oxford School of Drama. And there, um, one of the mantras there is a Samuel Beckett quote. I'm sure you've heard it many times, the ever tried, ever yeah. failed no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's <laughs> something that I try to remind myself of because I am, I am afraid of failure. 
So I, who isn't? But uh, like, um, so I try to remind myself that actually, you know, you kind of, in some cases you need to fail to learn. Um, in other cases, you can avoid failing by being prepared. But it's kind of, you sort of, you learn some from other people's mistakes and some from your own mistakes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you... Um, any advice, particularly for people in who speak Irish in particular, um, who are considering forging uh, a career in the, in this line of work? Have you any advice for them, or what would you say, kind of, to to them starting out at like seventeen or eighteen, or even to a younger version of yourself? Um, I'm not sure if I would have much to offer if I would have more to offer the younger version of myself or if he would have more to offer me. Yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, In terms yeah. of that kind of like, just sort of strange... I'm sure he'd confidence. say something along the, line, along the lines of, just just go and put on the fucking just show. Do it. Just put just the do show it, on. Man. It's grand. <laughs> it's good to book a show, yeah. book a venue, see um, the show on. I would... In terms... Well, you mentioned the Irish language thing there. Like, people who... Um, who have some Irish... Mm-hmm. Like, I think, in terms of you want to work in Irish the most important thing is that for people watching, it doesn't sound unnatural that you're speaking in Irish. Because yeah. you don't want, like, if something, you know, if, if for Tijikar or for Don stage or whatever, you, what you don't want is an audience member going, oh, why are they speaking Irish? Because it, it seems like they would be more comfortable communicating in English. Yeah. So that's, you kind of, like, if you've just left school, maybe your Irish would be less rusty. But if you're in a position where you've got very good Irish but it's a bit rusty then just find somewhere where you can use it like when I moved to Dublin a couple of years ago um, because I kind of wanted to continue to be involved in Irish language stuff having left the only bilingual city in the country which is Galway um, uh, I joined a Gaelic football team called Nagoyaloga so we do everything like training is Asgoyalga communication on the pitch is Asgoyalga we go out for drinks afterwards it's all Asgoyalga the whole lot and I think if people can find somewhere where they can use their Irish. It's great. Because that's, that's, that's a big challenge. Like, if you wanted to improve your Irish, you can go to week, you can you go to classes, you might go to, you know, 10 classes spread over 10 weeks and bring your Irish up to a, a really good standard. Um, but then it's like kind of going to the gym for 10 weeks and then leaving for a year and expecting to still have biceps a year later. Yeah. So you kind of need to find somewhere, even with friends, you know, ask your friends if they've got Irish. Go and watch a film and then say, we're going to go to the pub afterwards and only talk about the film. In Irish, or come talk to me. Honestly, if, if you meet me in the street and you want to speak Irish to me, I will be fucking delighted to speak Irish to you. <laughs> um, like in Galway, I think I was walking. If I was walking down the shop street and I met someone, one of my friends, I'd say there's probably a fifty percent chance that we would speak in Irish, and fifty percent chance we'd speak in English. Because there's just some people that, if if I've encountered them through Irish language stuff, or that's kind of the language that I know. They it's speak. not even a thing. It just happens. It's just, that, that's who I would yeah. speak. Like I would speak to them. That's the first language that would come to me. Not that it's my first language. It's my second language. It's a language that I learned in school and I've been trying to improve the whole time. And it's like something that, you know, how you can never, you never complete a language. You never get to 100%. Never mind what Duolingo tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, like Duolingo is great, actually, apparently. I've heard that people, you know, it's a good um thing to use if people want to improve their Irish but in terms of working yeah you want to get to the point where um, it sounds natural that you're using it to communicate because that's what people like you know in a scene you are saying lines to somebody because you want to tell them something you want to do something to them in terms of achieving an action or an objective so if your Irish doesn't flow very well people will be going well why is he why is he just not speaking to him in English kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So you want to kind of get past that. Now that said, I've got friends of mine who have done work in Irish who are such good actors that they can, they can fake it. They can sell it like they have a good rhythm and that they sound like they know what they're talking about, but actually they couldn't hold a conversation with you. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Which so is, they've, they've learned it phonetically, essentially. Um, or the sounds of it. Like they wouldn't be at the stage where they speak no Irish whatsoever because that's a, like that's a kind of a dangerous place to be because then you're kind of very much learning a certain delivery. It's like kind of saying it's like if you've learned a script and you've learned the way to deliver a particular line in just one way and you can't veer from that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's not like you kind of want to have a bit of flexibility. Plus, you'd also get found out if you're speaking west of Ireland Irish and the, yeah. way, the way a dub would, which would be the rarest of rarefied air. On <laughs> 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 uh, You know, but um, yeah, just uh, we need to 
There, but need, like, there in, needs to be more work that's not produced by TG Carr. Yeah, Irish, um, Irish. there was... Well, there are grants out there yeah, for these things. And there's the, the, the fishing scheme that the Dingle Film Festival ran until this year. When that's the right. Film Festival. I, I'm not sure if fishing will be moved to a different film festival or not, but that's a great fund for doing stuff. Ask Oelga, which is yeah. great. Um, and to be honest, like, if your Irish is good or, you know, close to being good, you know, a little bit of work away from being good, it's something that I'd recommend all actors to do some work in because... Mm. And like this is me talking myself out of a job, really. But I think <laughs> T.G. Gahar are probably sick of seeing the same faces. Yeah, yeah. They're probably sick of seeing like this, the same people in various productions coming up again and again and again. Yeah. So they want to see new faces. So yeah, submit. Yeah, submit. Take it. Yeah. Take a chance. And like if you're sending stuff to a casting director, be it Moran Hughes or Louise Kiley or anyone, just let them know that you have Irish, because mm-hmm. like both of them have been involved in casting stuff recently. Ask Oelga. And like if they do, if they know you have Irish, they can be like, okay, great, you know, because like, like there's no point really writing directly to TJ Carr because that is so many steps removed from the actual casting process because they most mostly wouldn't do their own stuff. They would commission stuff. It would be an external company that would be doing it. And then the external company might hire a casting director. So if you're writing to TJ Carr, then you're hoping that TJ Carr pass it on to the production company who will pass it on to their casting director. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of, you're, at, it's, you're not, it's not the most efficient way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you hear something that's happening, that's, that's uh, happening in Irish, you know, m- make sure that they know that you exist. Yeah. Do put yourself on tape. Have you ever, um, one last question about the, one last? Ask, well, yeah, well, we're, you know, we okay. have to go home at some point. Um, uh, have you, <laughs> This is a bold one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh-oh. Have you ever worked with somebody who hadn't a fucking clue what they were saying in Irish, but they'd learned it in such a way? <laughs> You're uh, like, this guy's a fu- or this girl is a fucking spoofer. They're spoofing their way through this. What the hell are they doing? And I'm not naming names, but has, has it happened? Um, <laughs> You're like, they... Let me think. <laughs> I've, I've worked with a couple of people, and like I, I sort of have felt sorry for them a little bit because they're in a position where they've been given a job um, to speak a language that they maybe they don't sl- speak fluently or very well. They have to learn these lines. And, like, I kind of feel sorry for them, bec- or felt sorry for them, because they were putting themselves under so much pressure to try to sound that right. That must be a, a, like a, a completely different type of anxiety in hell. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, because... It's like, the normal learn the lines, and then there's the learn the lines in a different language, technically. Absolutely, yeah. And, like, know. they had like very little brain space left to be able to do the acting part of it yeah, and the enjoy inflections. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was one thing, now this is a guy who was in a program that I did. This is one of my first programs. It was back in 2005. Um, <laughs> it was... Uh, Nee Higgum uh, on Kesht. Uh, small oh, cock and millish. Oh jeez, if it was that good, Paul, <laughs> we would have been doing well. Um, it was set, it was a program about three vets Three vets set up in County Down and it was um, <laughs> being made for BBC Northern Ireland and TG Cahar. Right. I was playing one of the vets and at one stage in one of the scenes, I think it was day one. Was it day one? I think it was the very first day of the, set, of the shoot. There was a guy who was supposed to come in with a dog, like an, an Irish wolfhound or whatever. And, you know, they had pasted, um, kind of uh, put some fake blood around the mouth of the dog. And he was supposed to say... Um, in Donny, in not Donegal, in Belfast Irish, look at the way this dog came home last night. So, Arkandoya Donaga on Madrasaw Walia Rare, which is not, this is kind of me doing neither Belfast Irish nor my own Irish. But anyway, he had kind of learned it in three syllable groups. Right. So I turned to him and he goes, Arkadoy, Adanashe, Honnawala, Rare. And I remember kind of looking at him going, oh, my God. And then kind of giving my line. And then when we called cut, look, kind of this little slow head turned to the director going, what the fuck? And the director assured me she was like, no, just, you know, do your thing and we'll we'll revoice his line off camera. Mm. Um, but he was like, he'd just been, he'd been brought in as an extra, a special extra. Oh, and I think they asked Christ. him, I think. There was a woman working it who didn't speak Irish who was organising the extras and she asked him, how good is your Irish on a scale of one to ten? And whatever number he gave her, Magic it wasn't seven. that. Magic it seven. wasn't that. I think he might have said a four and it wasn't even a four. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, 
Uh, anything coming up that people can see you in, or anything exciting coming up? Um, the Before the show. We let you let you go out into the wilds of Don't the, the rain. weather. Jesus. Um, the show that we did for the Arts Festival, Redemption Falls, is going to be on in the Peacock in October as part of DTF. So it's nice. Nice to be Love in it. the National Theatre building. Yeah. Um, that's great. We're on, I think we're on for almost two weeks and tickets are selling already, which is good. Um, and like I said, there's loads of music in it. So it's not your normal kind of a play. You don't have to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can I say about it? Yeah, so we're presenting it kind of like a theatre geek where we're kind of giving you bits of the story and actually, I think, allowing the audience to kind of put the story together themselves. Okay. Um, so it's interactive to a degree? N- not inter- uh, interactive in the sense that the audience's brains will be engaged. Um, <laughs> but we're not expecting any kind of call and response. Okay. okay. Um, there's no, he's behind you. Yeah, there's no call to Jesus, That sounded really ominous. <laughs> he's behind you. Jesus. Um, anything else? Any film, TV work? Bits and pieces? Um, the third, the the third time of me being St. Patrick, which you've also you said you've done some uh, voices on, mm-hmm. that's being released in uh, next St. Patrick's Day. Although I think at the moment they're only looking at uh, the states. They've, they've they're going for one of these things, which is like a, a an event cinema thing. So they've booked six hundred cinemas across the states wow. to to screen it in. Um, and so it'll be, uh, yeah, I might go over for the crack. And that, and you are Patrick. I am. I am Middle Patrick. Middle. Oh, sorry. So I've sadly I've outgrown my days of being Young Patrick. I was Young Patrick the first time I did a documentary about him <laughs> in two thousand and three, and Young Patrick again when we were doing the audio drama a couple of years ago. Uh, but now I am Middle Patrick, who mostly sort of returns to Ireland to try to convert the pagans and stuff. And it's, it was also shot by Colm Hogan. So I've got a, I've had the chance to work with Colm Hogan, loads, and he's a great, great cinematographer and a sound man. Um, so he shot that and there were three of us sharing the role of Patrick And who? Uh, so there's a young fella called Robert McCormack who's about 20 and so he's about the same age that I was when I initially played young Patrick and then there's <laughs> me as middle Patrick not middle aged Patrick not quite there yet okay. and then John Rhys Davies for, oh, no way. John Rhys Davies is old Patrick yeah that must have been fun a day, yeah. a fun day yeah so we got a chance to meet him but the funny thing was he'd also been old Patrick the voice of old Patrick in the radio drama a couple of years ago so, like, there were loads of coincidences. And also in this documentary, which was shot this year, we ended up filming in some of the same locations that we shot in in 2003 with that other documentary. Literally, in one <laughs> case, literally in one case, it was the same field in Connemara, the same side of a hill. No way. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. But, uh, yeah, so uh, that's that'll be out next year. So looking forward to seeing that, see what it kind of, what they have made of it. Um, and... Trying to do a bit more work behind the camera, a bit of uh, filming. Shot a short film for Aoife Nicargill, a friend of mine uh, who's an actor and writer recently. And we're going to be editing that in a couple of days. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. If you're looking for advice, I just tell people to get out there and uh, do work and get together with your friends and not be afraid to make mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Cheers. Gurav Mila Mila Magra. Uh, and uh, yeah uh, keep on keeping on man it's great to have you in thank you thank you